morning, everyone. So uh, lately, our kids have started to fight over some ridiculous things, and uh, it's kind of painful for everyone. Usually it happens when someone finds a toy that we haven't seen in a year, and then they all decide that it's their all of their favorites and that they will die if they can't have it right now. Um, it's super frustrating because I know if I could somehow make that toy disappear, they would forget about it just as fast as they remembered that it was their very favorite thing in the whole world. It's like, it's amazing the amount of consternation that can be caused by a, like two inch muscle man. And, and in those moments, I just want to shout at them like, what, ah, what you think is important is just, it's just not important. Um, but that doesn't really work. So I don't usually do that, usually. <laughs> and I don't know if my uh, experience with my kids is somehow coloring my reading of the Bible, but more and more, as I read the Gospels, it seems to me like Jesus is just, is often saying some version of that. What you think is important is not important. That's kind of how our passage begins today. Um, today, we're just going to talk through the text. I'm going to read a section of it and then talk about it a bit and continue on like that. Um, so here, uh, starting in verse 16, you can listen for his, what you think is important is not that important. To what shall I compare this generation? He says, they are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Basically, Jesus is saying, um, you're like kids who are playing games and who are never satisfied. John came to you in one way, an ascetic prophet in the desert. And I came to you in another way, eating and drinking, even celebrating, and neither were quite what you wanted. And so you couldn't or wouldn't see God in either one. And Jesus finishes that section about their response to him and John the Baptist with the words, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. The deeds that he's talking about are the miracles that he has performed, signs of the presence of the kingdom of God. And, um, Right after this, he launches into this section that the um, that the lectionary tried to skip over. You may have noticed that in our reading this morning, there was a sizable gap. Um, I'm going to add that section back in. I think the lectionary was being a little bit avoidant because uh, this is the kind of stuff that you wish Jesus wouldn't say. He pronounces judgment on several towns where he had performed his miracles. He says wisdom is proved right by her deeds, but then it's like he stops and thinks about the towns that he has visited and he thinks, not even the miracles did it. So verse 20, then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. 
For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Kind of harsh. But it's important that we face all of the things that Jesus said, learn to reckon with them. Um, so I want us to notice a couple of things that um, come up in this section. First, uh, the right response to both Jesus, or sorry, to both John's, <laughs> the right response to both John's fire and brimstone preaching and also Jesus's gracious miracles of healing are the same. They both call for repentance. No matter how the kingdom of God comes to you, the proper response is to repent. And to repent is to recognize that you're going the wrong way and to switch directions, right? It's to recognize your sin, to turn away from it, and to turn towards Jesus. I often read essays by a woman named Debbie Thomas as I prepare for my sermons. And this week she said that her son had asked her a question, um, an important one, I think. He said, what's the difference between your progressivism and your Christianity? What does your faith give you that you don't get by being a good person? I think those are really important questions, especially for those of us who care about social justice. Lots of people leave the church because they don't know the answers. Um, they think their Christianity is about making them a good person and they figure they can do that alone. Anyway, she gave her son a whole list of answers. She said, you know, my faith gives me hope. I know that Jesus is with me in my sufferings. I know that I'm loved by God. And while all of that was true, as she thought about the question more and more, one answer started to take more significance than the rest. And she said, my faith gives me my own sinfulness. She says this, Christianity liberates me with a truth that cuts before it heals. The truth that sin is a deadly, destructive force against which I am helpless and powerless, apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus. It tells the truth that we are both beautiful and broken, made in God's divine image, but enslaved to something that actively wars against our efforts to be good and to do good. And repentance has kind of gone out of style. And talking about sin is, um, is really offensive in lots of spaces. But this kind of truthfulness about ourselves, it seems, is always the first step towards the kingdom of God. One woman that I really respect um, always says that we ought to keep short accounts with the Lord. To, uh, that every day we should ask the question, like, how have I loved well and how have I failed to love well? Um, never to wallow in guilt, but to tell the truth about ourselves and receive again the grace of God, to turn towards the kingdom anew. It turns out it's actually an enormous relief to admit that you're a sinner. It's exhausting to convince everyone and yourself that you're perfect all the time or even like good enough to meet some bar. Christians can take great comfort in not having to be more than they are. God's grace will always meet us. We will always be God's beloved. And strangely, that can give us great courage in the world. 
when you don't have to show up perfectly, it is much more likely that you will show up at all. These woes seem to say that without repentance, even Jesus's miracles can become judgment. But when we admit our sin, it is at that exact moment that we are set free. As I confess, my sin ceases to be a weight around my neck and becomes instead an avenue for God's grace to lift me out of the pit. The second thing that I want us to notice about these woes um, is that Jesus doesn't have any trouble at all with collective guilt. Um, that's Collective guilt is the kind of thing that I just don't really understand very well. I have tons of questions about it. Um, and that makes sense because we live in the most individualistic culture in the world. So, you know, my brain isn't set up to think in that collective kind of way. And also everything around me um, tells me that I shouldn't even bother to try. But whatever trouble I might have with it, Jesus here is condemning entire towns because they didn't repent. And thinking about that made me wonder um, about what collective repentance might look like. Jesus suggests sackcloth and ashes. Um, in the Old Testament, uh, sometimes all of Israel would declare a day of fasting and repentance and they would wear sackcloth, like a itchy potato sack kind of material. Um, and ashes on their faces to signify their their repentance and their longing for God's mercy. Um, one of the other markers of collective repentance in the Old Testament is the tearing down of idols. So throughout the books of First King, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, there's kind of this back and forth between different kings and whether they were righteous or or whether they did what was right in their own eyes. It says. Um, the Israelites were constantly getting mixed up in Canaanite religion, and one of the marks of a righteous king was that he would tear down the Asherah poles, um, which were monuments to honor a pagan god. And I couldn't help but connect that to the monuments that are being torn down now. You know, is that a sign of our collective repentance for the, <clears throat> for the sin of white supremacy? It could be. I've heard people say that we in um, the United States, Canada, we worship the idol of European man. Perhaps that's the idol that we're starting to tear down now. I hope and pray that it is genuine repentance and that it will lead to something new. Jesus finishes up his woes and the text goes on in verse 25. It says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You hear in this little section a reversal that is present all through the Bible. It's not the wise and learned. You know, that would be the religious teachers, the super well-educated. Um, it's not the wise and learned who really have the inside line on God, but the little children. And of course, that's a stand-in for all those who are of little account to society. 
It's the least of these, the children, the outsiders, the poor, the marginalized. And you can hear Jesus say it again, what you think is important is not important. Whatever markers you have set up to tell, a, to tell you who is worthy of your time, who's worth listening to, those markers may just be entirely wrong. God is pleased to have those who the world deems unimportant to be the first in the kingdom of God, even greater than John the Baptist, he says earlier in chapter 11. And just that's just as he tells, that, tells everyone that John the Baptist is Elijah. He says, even the least is greater than him. That's some like difficult mental math for me. Um, that's why repentance matters. Because what the world thinks is important is so often not important. Someone just said uh, something like this to me. Like, maybe if this broken world doesn't work for you, then you're doing something right. So maybe it's the people who are depressed and anxious, who are weighed down. Maybe it's those who are poor and mourning and meek and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Those ones have got something right. This upside-downness of God's revelation reminds me again and again that we ought to listen especially closely to those who are on the outside or who are on the bottom of our society. Because they may just know something of God that people like me are not able to see or not willing to see. And is there anything more important than that? Can I learn to look to those who are marginalized in whatever way, not just people, not just as people that I can somehow fix or save, but as people who might be able to teach me something about God, or who I might especially ask for their prayers. It seems that it pleases God that it would be so. Our passage ends with Jesus' well-known invitation, which we have painted on the steps of our building. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Things are so heavy right now. And this call is for all of you who are bearing the weight and know it. For those of you who are repenting and feeling the weight of your own complicity. For those of you who are grieving the state of the world and who wish they knew how to do more. For those of you who see the brokenness of this place so clearly because it bears down on them, Jesus invites you to himself to take on his yoke, which is easier than whatever it is that you are bearing. Um, a yoke is like a neck thing uh, that an ox would wear and it would kind of simultaneously contain the ox and also help it to pull a cart. Um, but for Jewish, Jewish people, the word yoke, they use that as like a metaphor for Torah. Um, it was about the teachings of the law. So when Jesus says, my yoke, he's referring to his teaching. So you could think of the Sermon on the Mount as his yoke, for example. 
a lot of the things in this passage seem so harsh, right? Jesus' assertion that people don't recognize God in their midst no matter what he does. Um, the woes to the whole town. The um, statement that those at the center of society with all the power and privilege are actually not the ones who have, who get the gospel. It's actually others who get it in a way that they don't. And then even when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, if we equate that with the Sermon on the Mount, it doesn't feel super restful. But I think it is. All the hard stuff is an invitation to repentance, which cuts first, and then it heals and liberates. It's hard to acknowledge, but then you get to settle into the truth, both that you are a sinner and that God is forever gracious that you are broken and entirely wholly loved. And if this world with all its sin and pain and death and confusion feels too heavy for you, return again and again to Jesus. This week, for whatever reason, I was feeling um, sad, maybe kind of depressive, I don't know. Um, it's just a couple of days. But since I was mulling over this passage as I was kind of sitting in this sadness, I was thinking about what it might mean to lay down that burden of trying to fix my sadness and instead to take on Jesus's yoke. So I spent some time in prayer asking this question, what do I already know about my sadness? What has Jesus already taught me? Um, not so much, what is Jesus trying to teach me through this? Because I know sometimes that can feel like an extra burden to bear, but what do I already know? And I felt like I received several answers in that prayer. Um, I felt the Spirit remind me that Jesus holds my sadness, that he knows it, that he grieved over Lazarus, that he grieved over how much the world did not see him and come to him, that he was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And then I remembered the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, and my sadness became a kind of blessed thing, even though I don't quite understand it. And then I remember Jesus' counsel not to worry, because the Father cares for me. And you know, I was still sad at the end of all of that, but the burden was lighter. And it goes farther than that too, um, the lightness of Jesus' yoke, because while a lot of the things that Jesus asks of us are difficult, they are always good. So, for example, Jesus commands us to love, which is often a bit of a slog, you know, especially for some people. Um, but if I do it, you know what I end up with? Love. Love. Like, I end up loving people and end up often receiving their love in return. It's healing for both of us. It has the result of deeper relationships and more flourishing communities. Or say, forgiveness, you know, that can be brutal to try and work through forgiving someone, but I become free from, free by it. And maybe even reconcile. Or maybe even open up some space for change for the one who I've forgiven. Or if I learn to deal with my anger quickly, that work can be terrible, but also look, no more resentment. 
and I don't have to spend my short life fuming. Or sometimes it can be hard to take a Sabbath because things are so, so busy. But what glory and grace to have a God who does not want slaves, but who wants us to take a break. And then I get to take a nap by the order of the Most High. And even if this call should go all the way to death, even then, that death will usher me into the fulfillment of all of my desires in God. Our God is so good. And even when things seem harsh, it's a grace that cuts before it liberates. God calls us to repentance because we, as individuals and as whole communities, are so often focused on the wrong things. And those things become a heavy burden. Jesus calls us, sometimes harshly, sometimes gently, to turn away from sin. And it gives us the courage to enter into dark places, it gives us hope that God is making all things right. It returns us to ourselves, it eases the weight of the world, and it finally draws us into the kingdom of heaven. It is grace upon grace upon grace. Please pray with me. Lord, whatever um, people are bearing, Lord, I pray that you would uh, teach us what it means to take your yoke upon us. I pray that we would find it light. I pray that we would find that you are gentle and humble of heart. I pray that we would find rest for our souls. Lord, teach us the freedom of confession, forgiveness, repentance. Teach us what it means to walk with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.